dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Well, we got some some good news this last week. Um, Things are starting to ease up in Kansas. Our our governor has said that while there's still an emergency declaration out there, so that takes care of the the day-to-day you know, nitpicky type stuff to keep funds going to the right people. Um, We are now under local laws as far as opening up and how and when and where, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're starting to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, aren't we, Kayleen? Yeah, I sure hope so. Well, last week you were at the rodeo in in, uh, Greensburg. Yeah, my husband went Friday night to help uh, move stock around in the pens, and then Saturday I had enough of my two children and sent them to Grandma's, and him and I went back over there Saturday night, and he was helping back in the pens sorting stock and pushing animals up, and the very little I got to see at the rodeo because he got hit by a gate and had to go to the Kiowa County Hospital and get some stitches. Isn't that the luck? You know, you're doing <laughs> something good, you're helping out. Did he even get to ride, or, or did that did that put no, the kibosh on that? They weren't having ranch broncs, so he thought about getting on some saddle bronc if they had an extra one, but that didn't happen. Well, it's good that you guys had a little bit of time out, and I bet you the boys enjoyed their time with Grandma, right? Yeah, because they stayed all the way till Monday. Sean or Chance stayed with Grandma, and then Sean went and stayed with my sister, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, went to the hospital, got some stitches, right? Yeah, she, I figured they'd banish me to the car and make me wait in the car, but they have a little waiting room there outside of the ER, and she kind of gave us the side eye when her question, she asked six or seven questions to Spence, and, well, have you been outside Kiowa County? He's like, I'm not from Kiowa County, I'm from Ford County. She kind of gave us the side eye. <laughs> well, that just means they're going to have to do a little bit extra, you know, precautions and sanitation, I suppose, in their heads. Because, you know, you can't be too careful, I suppose. <laughs> and his temperature was up, obviously, because he was, you know, he got knocked down pretty hard. And <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was not. 100.3, and they checked it. He said four times they checked it while he was in there. Yikes. That, that so. is a little bit high. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of adrenaline going on, I believe. Well, I tell you what, my four-day weekend, I desperately needed it. I don't know if you could tell in the last couple of weeks, Kayleen or so, but I've been kind of holding on to sanity by a thread. And I bet <laughs> you I'm not the only one out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I I took Friday and I, um, you know, got started in on some yard work I've been meaning to get done. 
And I tell you what, the older I get, the more I completely understand my grandpa Clark. Because if you stepped on that man's grass, you heard about it. There were very few things that made that man cross, but stepping on his grass when there was a perfectly good sidewalk, that would get you a tongue lashing like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) I can imagine. Well, I had to do the same thing to our nice, friendly postal service folks because they have walked a cow path in my yard and brought stickers from other yards that they've walked in. And now those stickers have spread in my perfectly good grass along the cow path. And now I am lobbing every part of chemical warfare at those things. <laughs> I just started digging them up by hand, Kaylee. <laughs> yeah, that's what sometimes you have to resort to. Well, mechanical, mechanical removal. <laughs> mechanical uh, weed control options. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I totally understand now. And at some point in time when I get to heaven and I can chat with Grandpa Clark, I'm just going to go, I totally get it, sir. I will never walk on anybody's lawn ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I finally got some major projects done around here. Got the yard straightened up. The porch is looking good. You know, trees finally trimmed. And of course, wouldn't you know it, I didn't trim a branch high enough. And I walked right into it on Saturday. Almost <laughs> almost knocked myself out in the front yard. <laughs> I, I just, I really should have a keeper, Kayleen. I should have somebody around me at all times, like with orange cones set up and a, you know, six foot radius around me and... <laughs> Maybe somebody like a lifeguard with a whistle. <laughs> well, you're so willing to tell on yourself, too. It's because it's hilarious. <laughs> I can <laughs> laugh at myself. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe that's the concussion talking. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, we finally got to see the fellas kids after two or three months of, of you know, being quarantined and at, away from each other. You know, we finally got to see them this weekend, too, and. That was really good for the soul, just being able to to see him and and give him a little bit of a hug, you know. Um, yeah, we're we're starting to see some things that are opening up in the area. We got really great news from Boot Hill Museum, didn't we? They're they're going to be open June first. Yeah, and- I saw their their post on social media. Sean, my oldest, has been asking for months. Can we go to Boot Hill? Can we go to Boot Hill? I'm like, they're not open yet. They're not open yet. <laughs> but he yeah. hasn't asked yet since I heard that tidbit of information. So. Well, they will be open June 1, and it'll be the first debut of the brand new facility there, the the new um, museum setup that they've got. Now, I hear that the shows don't start until June 15th because obviously they've got to get the can-can girls and the Miss Kitties and everybody, the gunfighters all up to speed again. Um, so they, they've got a, they weren't able to do any of that in the middle of the quarantine, I guess. So you know what, June 15th, you ready for a rip roaring good time down there. And my friends and I, we have decided that we're going to have a girls night out at Boot Hill Museum. Um, it's, it's the least we can do. You know, you think about it, there's all sorts of really good places in our local communities that have been closed and shuttered. You know what? Go there and enjoy them with your family. Now, don't go there willy-nilly and start licking surfaces and hugging up on random strangers. You know, let's be, let's be smart about it. Yeah. But 
go enjoy, spend some of that, you know, $1,200 or so that the government gave you and start spreading around to the community. That's the best thing that we can do is, is that in, infuse that money into the local communities that mean so much to ourselves. Yeah, I have to agree. I think, you know, people are so used to, I don't know how to say it without sounding harsh, <laughs> but people are used to being in their homes, being on lockdown, doing everything they think they need to do, and it's time to kind of step out, be reasonable, be safe, but just take care of yourself and be smart. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's just going to get worse. You know, as long as we're not, like I said, as long as you're not on top of each other in a very crowded situation, you know, like give yourself some distance between people that, you know, don't live in your household. There's no reason to be, you know, shoulder to shoulder against people, even if you're outside. That's just ridiculous. You know, just everybody just pretend you're Kayleen and take a step back from people, okay? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a big fan of other people, especially if they're crawling up my space. And yeah, we all just need you to find. You don't get the full effect of the dirty look if there's if I have a mask on either. <laughs> you just need to find your inner Kayleen, everybody. Okay, S- say it with me. <laughs> Step back, buddy. <laughs> yeah, because the hateful cow might come out. You know, I love you more than my luggage, and I love my luggage. No, but uh, seriously, though, um, it's it's time. And, and you know, you start looking at the local community and the local events. And, yeah, we've had a lot of things that got canceled, um, a lot of major crowded celebrations. Like, I don't think you're going to see crowds the way we, we've always known them to be, um, good or bad. Uh, the latest thing that you heard this last week or yesterday, I guess, was that the Cheyenne Frontier Days, they canceled, right? Yeah, yesterday afternoon, I ran across something on Facebook, and I thought, huh, maybe I ought to watch that. Sure enough, it was the Wyoming governor. He uh, came on and had a press conference, and they canceled not only Cheyenne Frontier Days, but also uh, five other rodeos, which included um, Cody, Wyoming, Casper, Sheridan, Laramie, and Thermopolis. And these were pretty decent sized rodeos yeah those are good payouts right yeah I I had to I was curious I had to go look it up and Cheyenne's payout last year was $904,000 holy buckets that's pretty significant and the next highest was Cody which had $353,000 and they went all the way down to Thermopolis which is a population of like 2,800 people and their rodeo paid out nearly $40,000 so, so to backtrack here for for people that are listening to this and are thinking, "Holy cow, that's a lot of money!" What explain that that rodeo cowboys are independent contractors, right? They they don't have a, you know, they don't have a team. There's no owner. There's no signing bonuses or anything. They strictly go where there's prize money, right? Yeah, like these rodeos that, that I'm talking about are PRCA rodeos, which are professional rodeo cowboy association. These competitors, they have to buy a membership and women that compete in the barrel race and they have a membership to the women's professional rodeo association. You pay a membership to be in these groups. And then they have, there's rodeos all across the country. 
you pick the one that fits your schedule, you like the arena, whatever. You enter and you have to pay your fees, which entry fees, they go into the pot. And a lot of these rodeos have what they call added money, which I'm not sure if they keep some of the entry fees. The committees do. I'm not sure how they do the payout mm-hmm. specifically, but the entry fee money and the added money go in the pot, which is the payout. So, And that added money, that comes from local community supporters. That's your, the JCs and the, yes. and the Lions Club and the guy that makes the, the you know, hamburgers downtown at McDonald's and this, that, and the other. Those are our yeah. businesses that pony up and say, hey, that rodeo brings people to our community as a tourism draw. It's worth our time and money to support it, to pony up some money. It's a good thing. Um, you shared something, though, that that kind of uh, caused me to pause because I never even would have thought about it that way. Uh, there was a, a cowboy that you follow, right? Yeah, Sage Kimsey. He was, uh, he's a young bull rider, and he's won the world a few times in the last five years and he had some pretty sage advice let me see if i can find it here so i can read what he said on his post yesterday he says i get it you're tired of rodeos being canceled you're angry because we want to be rodeoing and want to make money but now is not the time to bash the rodeos rodeos are community events we have been a part of community events for over 100 years if the community is struggling how do we expect them to donate 250 dollars to an ad in a program when they haven't worked in over 50 days. How do we expect these people who are worried about feeding their families, losing their businesses and surviving to put on a rodeo when their community is suffering? And then he goes on to talk about the disappointment and all those things that these contestants are facing. And at the end, he says, I will not bash any rodeo because they are all the reason that I have a roof over my head. Like I've said before, when it's time, I'll be ready to ride. None of us want to see it happen, but we cannot forget that the, that right now everyone is struggling and sometimes they don't have another choice. We'll get through this because that's what cowboys and cowgirls do. I, I appreciate his words. You know, that's a very even thoughtful, you know, response to a situation that's, you know, quite easily it's, it's easy for us to be very selfish when we think about these things. But when you start putting yourself in other people's shoes, you kind of understand, right? Yeah, and a lot of these rodeos have sponsors that are in the ag industry, and the ag industry is suffering just like anybody else. I mean, there's areas where the oil and gas industry are suffering, and they they sponsor the rodeos too. So, you know, it's hard to see these events being postponed and canceled, but at the same time, you have to understand what the volunteers and the committees and everybody is doing. I sat down and made a list last night of all the things that you would need to put on for a rodeo. And it ranges from things like the tractor driver to insurance down to the credit card machine that you have to pay for the transactions on the credit card machine. If you're selling tickets. So there's all kinds of expenses that there is to put on a rodeo. And these six rodeos were, have already spent money to promote their rodeos to you know, secure a stock contractor, to secure announcers, and all these individuals that help put on the rodeo. And they're out that money. So I can see where they're coming, and they have to look at their volunteer base because a lot of these rodeos are put on by volunteers. 
And I personally know some of the volunteers here in Dodge City up around them, and they are of an age where they should need to be concerned about the virus. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend on Facebook that commented on my story that I wrote about the Wyoming rodeos. And she said she's been involved with Shine Frontier Days as a volunteer. And she says, I know it's a very difficult decision to make to cancel. We will come back bigger and better every bigger and better next year from the ashes rise. Great things. And she's really, really right because I think they made the right decision. You know, as much as these towns are suffering right now, they don't need any more undue added stress to it. Well, and when they do come back, expect things to not be absolutely 100% normal. You know, expect that there's probably going to be fewer seats available because they're going to try to space people out maybe, you know, or. I I know when I went to Greensburg Saturday night, I was kind of expecting people to, you know, distance a little bit. Did they bunch up? Yeah. (laughs) The stands were full and people were being people. And even the kids, I think the kids were, because I was sitting over on the contestant side and the kids were just being what, rodeo kids are running around playing in the dirt you know that's just what they do and you couldn't tell (laughs) that there was a pandemic going on we are hurt aren't we (laughs) (laughs) you know I I I honestly wonder about everything that you said about what goes into a major event and that's a rodeo think about parades think about you know festivities outside of the rodeo you know the car shows and the the lawn shows and all of that it's going to probably not look and feel like it did before well that's one of the Cheyenne Frontier Days the CEO he spoke yesterday and he said that too they couldn't imagine having these events without the parade without the street dance without the different events that go alongside of the rodeo Mm mm-hmm Well, and all of those evolved over the last 50, 60, 70 years. You know, it used to be everybody showed up. There was an arena. You brought in some stock. You had the rodeo. Yeehaw. Well, then somebody enterprising and the community said, hey, let's throw a parade together and welcome them in and and have a big send off. And hey, let's have a rodeo dance. Hey, yeah, let's add this and this and this. And it's all a nice little layer upon layer of big city events. Um, So... Like I said, you know, it's probably not going to look the same. There's probably going to be added things, added, you know, added precautions taken into account. Honestly, um, we can either gritch and moan about it, or we can just say, okay, that's, if that's how it's going to happen, at least we get to have the event, you know? (laughs) I just, I And, you know, these these events like this have such an economic impact on these these little towns and even the big towns. Like, I saw somewhere that they had moved the, uh, this isn't a rodeo, but it's the Junior National Angus show. Mm-hmm. They moved it to Tulsa. And the amount of money they were saying that it's going to bring to Tulsa was mind-blowing. Yeah. You've got all those families that need places to stay, are going to be dining out, are going to be buying groceries if they're going to make meals in the in the stalls. You know, you've got fuel of all of those vehicles hauling all of those trailers. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, I, I had a friend send me a 
impact study that he had done in Guymon. And he, him and his family have a small arena outside of town and they, the people that come, the contestants that come to the rodeo, they come stay at his place. So they're not by the arena or whatever. They want a quiet place for their horses and a quiet place for them to, to stay. And he kind of figured up, you know, this isn't scientific. He just talked to the ones that he had at his house and the 22 contestants that come and stayed with him, they stayed about, you know, three, four days in town and they did extracurricular activities in town. They went to the movies, they went golfing, they stocked up at Walmart, they bought fuel. And he said on average, the 22 contestants, each of them spent about $355 in the, the three days they were there. Wow. And there's, he said there was 820 contestants average last year. Times that $355, that's $291,000 that were spent in a four-day period in that town. And Guymon's the size of, I mean, it's not that big, right? No, it's, it's probably eighteen twenty thousand, 20000 maybe. I don't know if you know if it's that big. Yeah, it's a, it's the, a major this, impact. The city, yes, the city of Guymon gets a share of that tax revenue. The county gets a share. Even the state of Oklahoma gets a share of that $290-some-thousand dollars. You know, it's it's fascinating to me when you start digging down into just how far a dollar bill goes in your community when it's circulated in your community. Every I'm, I'm not in an economic development, but I have friends that are. And every time I chat with them, they constantly open my eyes to all of the places that we take for granted that when you spend your dollars locally, you get more bang for that buck. And just an an infusion of cash from an outside source, like, you know, travelers coming in, that's, that's the, that's how you help a community stay thriving and, and going forward. Um, Well, and like Cheyenne, I think I read somewhere that they had 97,000 people that went to the rodeo over the 10, 10 days. And Cheyenne is only, Cheyenne's only like a 64,000 population. Holy buckets. Well, that's kind of like um, the the bike rally up in Sturgis. Um, I've got a friend who's a, a biker, um, and he and his friends go up there every single year from Memphis. They, they drive their bikes up there, um, ride, drive, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, he's, a, he's a big fan of Sturgis. Would never think of him as your typical Sturgis-looking biker, of course. But uh, he was he had shared something from the Sturgis community where the impact of just that one week of rally time on the locals in little bitty Sturgis, South Dakota, if they don't have that rally, there's going to be businesses that go under because they oh, yeah. they make or break on that one week's worth of, of receipts. And so I've been to Sturgis during the rally and the visitors take over the town. Yeah. I mean, people that are actual residents, they leave town for the week of the rally if they're able to, and they rent out their homes or they, they rent out their yards for parking lots. And they, I mean, it's, they welcome the rally in because they understand, well, weren't you the one that was telling me that entire storefronts, they will take all of their merchandise and they will rent the storefronts to pop up merchandise for the rally. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The t- and the, the little downtown, the streets are packed. There's people walking everywhere. There's motorcycles everywhere. And 
there was shops that had done that. There's the whole town is just bombarded by these bikers and they're, they're people that come with them. Well, and it's not just Sturgis. It's the entire Black Hills of South Dakota because they don't just stay in, in town. They take those beautiful bikes and they go and they look at Mount Rushmore and they go to Keystone and they go to Deadwood and they go to Lead and they're driving all over the Black Hills enjoying the scenery and everywhere they go, they drop cash. You know, it's infusion of cash. Yeah, when I went up there, my husband was on a, on a harvesting crew and they stayed in Hay Spring, not Hay Spring, was it Hay Spring? Hot Spring. Hot Spring. They stayed there and it was you know, I don't know how far. Oh, it's a good ways away from Sturgis, yeah. Yeah, it was a drive, and all their rooms were full, and they had to make sure that they paid for their rooms so they could keep them during Sturgis. Yep. Because otherwise they wouldn't honor their reservation or whatever, and yeah, it was crazy, the amount of people that was there. So I guess what we're getting around to is we really encourage you guys that are listening to this, as things start opening up in your area, as events start coming on, you know, coming live and, and coming back to life, you know what, go and enjoy them. Be mindful of your, of your family safety, you know, however you want, you choose to be mindful of your own family safety, but please go and, and enjoy, um, go local. You know, if there's something in your local area that makes you roll your eyes and you just go, Oh, all those people coming in, blah, blah, blah. You know what? This is (laughs) honestly. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I used to be a stampede girl. You know, I was, I was one of those going out there every year, getting sunburned and doing, you know, all sorts of fun stuff at, at Tuttle Creek state park. It's a lovely place, but if there's something that usually makes you roll your eyes this year of all years, stop rolling your eyes and go and enjoy if you're able. Now we know not everybody has the financial wherewithal to do this, but if you do have a little bit of spare cash, start infusing it in your community, start spending it locally, and, and you'll see the rewards. It it doesn't take too long to see things start blooming up again. So, And speaking of, of Harvest Crews, Kayleen, next week, we are so excited. The Pages of High Plains Journal We'll, once again, feature our All Aboard Wheat Harvest Cruise. We're kind of tickled about that, aren't we? Yeah, it sounds like they're going to be have another great lineup. And did you end up on four, or how many are they going to be? I believe we have five. Um, we, we had, we've got a couple that are going to be part-timers and two that are full-timers. And we'll be introducing all of those correspondents and their crews in the pages of the June 8th High Plains Journal. Um, We're really, really just thrilled that we get to do this program one more year. Uh, We've got some really great sponsors lined up and and some more that are are thinking about joining us. And we'll we'll have that debut and everything. And we'll actually get to talk to our correspondents in next week's um, episode of, of HPJ Talk. We'll start running our weekly correspondent reports and you and I were going to get to uh, talk with them out in the field, right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think this year it's going to be fun. One of the things that we're actually adding to all aboard wheat harvest. And if you're following us on, on Facebook, we really encourage you to go check out the all aboard wheat harvest uh, Facebook page. 
because our correspondents each week are going to be doing a Facebook Live. And it's Ask the Harvester. So if there are, are uh, questions you have for our harvest crews, if there are things that you want to know about life on the road or how the wheat crop looks or anything like that, we want you to, to ask those questions. Our correspondents will be doing one a week um, on a rotating basis throughout the three months of the harvest season. And I'm really tickled to see how this goes, Kayleen. It's, it's always an experimental thing, but I think, um, I think it's going to bring harvest to your living rooms even more. So kind of excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that people like to, to follow along, even if it is on the pages of the journal or online. You know, I still remember when we th when we thought up the idea for wheat uh, all aboard wheat harvest. Uh, one of our our former ad sales guys, he and I were actually at a cotton meeting, and I told him, I said, you know, it'd be really great if we did something with wheat harvest, kind of like the guys at Deadliest Catch. You know, wouldn't it be cool to you know embed a photography team on a harvest crew? And he looks at me and he goes we can do that. <laughs> and if you ever met Pete, <laughs> Pete made it happen. So uh, Pete's now since retired and, and he's, you know, living the high life as, as a retiree with his grandkids. But I tell you what, um, he had some foresight there. So we're, we're giddy to bring that back to you all again. And don't forget, you can follow them online at um, allaboardweedharvest.com. You can also uh, follow their exploits in the pages of High Plains Journal. And, of course, uh, follow them on Twitter and Facebook, too. So how are you folks doing out there? Drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, and do us a favor, if you would, and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing or if there's a topic that uh, you'd like us to cover. So in this week's episode, we'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the May 25th print edition. Holy cow, May 25th already, Kayleen? Why does it feel like it's been an, a century? <laughs> uh, Kayleen's going to bring us the latest on grain markets, and then we will have our final thoughts. Hey, we're still all safe and sound. We sure hope you guys are too, wherever you are. And we want to thank you for riding with us here on HPJ Talk. by Lacey Newland, laying a foundation for feral hog removal. Originally brought to America by Spanish explorers, feral hog numbers have steadily grown through the years. Their populations have reportedly been established in 35 states, but cited in all but two states in the United States. Lacey spoke with Joshua Gascamp, wildlife and range consultant manager at the Noble Research Institute in Arbor, Oklahoma, and Jim Cathy, associate director for the Texas A&M Natural Resources Institute. Gascamp told her there are roughly 7 million feral swine in the U.S. right now, but calculating that number is complicated. Quote, it's a little 
difficult to understand exactly what's happening with the feral hog situation because there are some unknowns, Kathy said. Counting any animals in the wild is difficult. Feral hogs don't have the eye shine like deer do. They're black and they're active at night, so it's just difficult to get a direct count, end quote. Uh, you know what? Have you been down to the Noble Research Foundation there in Ardmore, haven't you, Kayleen? I haven't. Okay, so I, I have a couple of times. I've been down there for some field days that they have, and those folks are some of the smartest engineering um, thinkers on the planet. They created this hog catcher that is basically a big round uh, pen, and it's lifted up in the air. And just high enough that, that hogs will go in underneath it. And they lay a, a trap of a pile of corn in the middle of this big round pen that's sitting up in the air on a, on a winch. And they'll let that, those hogs, they'll, they'll go in there and they'll eat. And sometimes they'll, they'll let them come in and come out and come in and come out. And when they get a group of, I don't know, 25, 30, or however many that that pen can hold, the guy that's monitoring it will hit a button and it drops that <laughs> and catches the hogs. <laughs> I tell you what, I find an inordinate amount of pleasure watching this thing in action. And if you've ever, ever dealt with a wild hog problem in your farmland, you find a little bit of satisfaction at this thing too. It doesn't hurt the hogs. Um, if you're listening to this and, you know, clutching your pearls it's a safe and humane way to do it. But frankly, if you've ever had farmland torn up by a, a pack of wild hogs, you don't mind a little bit of payback. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, you ever seen a wild hog, Kaylee? I've seen them from a distance. I've never been up close. We had a friend that went to Texas and went on a hog hunt, and he brought back some of the meat and smoked it and tasted like pork. You know what? You have to handle, you have to handle it in a certain way to get it to taste a certain way. So yeah, well, and there's also a safety factor. You know, these are wild pigs, so there you need to make sure that you cook that correctly, so you uh, yes you don't get yourself or your friends and family sick inadvertently. So well, and I've been been around enough domesticated hogs to understand that they are kind of dangerous anyway, even if they are domesticated. I mean, we were around sows and boars when we were kids, and there was times when the boar would come after you, and my Uncle Mark got the wrath of a, a boar a few times, so they are dangerous, even though they are domesticated. They just need to be treated a certain way. You know what? And if you need any further proof, I point you to the entire seasons of the show from HBO called Deadwood, and just look up Deadwood and pigs, and... We're going to leave it at that. <laughs> no, but this is a good thing, um, making sure that that we control those feral swine. It is a critical thing to our agricultural interests. Plus, they tear up actual space that wildlife, other than feral hogs, use. Um, where, they're, where they're at, you don't see deer. You don't see other wildlife. Um, they're just a, an invasive species that needs controlled, so... Um, Lacey also had a story inside about o Oklahoma State Extension researching positive impact of top dress nitrogen and insecticide combination applications. So several years ago, Oklahoma State um, Extension entomologist Tom Royer, he started noticing tank mixing of pyrethroid insecticide with winter top dress nitrogen 
was becoming more popular across the state, um, especially with those that were planting continuous wheat. The practice puzzled him a little bit, and he began to question the possible advantages wheat growers could be gaining from the process. He says, I started wondering if it was really paying for itself and why they were doing it. I had a pretty good idea that farmers didn't want to make two trips across the field, and that was why. But I was wondering what benefit they were getting out of the combo. So Royer learned from several suppliers in the state this combination of insecticide and nitrogen is an extremely common practice, and he knew it was a fairly inexpensive treatment to add to the top dress because they were using a common generic pyrethroid insecticide product. But as a scientist, he was skeptical of the practice and the value it could add. So that's why this research is so critical. Um, you can, of course, look for more information on that in the pages of High Plains Journal. On our opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmeier has his column, Memorial Day, Timeless Tradition That Says It All. And the Washington Whispers column for this week is titled Farewell, Folks. It's the last column for Seymour Clearly. You know, that's that's something that... Uh, I can't believe we're we're seeing the last column for Seymour clearly, Kayleen. He had, or she has been <laughs> a fixture of the High Plains Journal my entire life. I have read Seymour clearly since I was old enough to start reading the High Plains Journal. And uh, for those of you that are fans of Seymour clearly, um, write to us and let us know uh, what you think. Or write to us and, and say your goodbyes to Seymour. Um we, we wish him or her the best of luck uh, in their future endeavors. I think it might be less endeavors and more uh, pina coladas on a beach somewhere. <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> yeah, they've had a good long run, and, and hopefully that, I don't know if we're going to replace them or if we're going to fill that spot some other way, but hopefully we'll find a good replacement. There you go. Was there a letter to the editor, too? It was the same as last week's. I asked Dave, and it was a mistake. So, <laughs> Well, you <laughs> caught us, folks. Sometimes we make mistakes in the print version of High Plains Journal. So <laughs> there you go. We have um, Larry Schnell, co-owner of Stockman Livestock Exchange in Dickinson, North Dakota. You got two bangs for one buck. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and contributor David Murray has a story. Um, he writes about... Uh, Secretary Purdue announced a $71 million reconnect investment in high-speed broadband for rural Kansas and Oklahoma. And those are right around uh, Representative Frank Lucas's district and um, another key district in, in Kansas, too. So um, those are, are good spots for us to start building our, our broadband capabilities, and we look forward to more. Kayleen has a story about Bipartisan Center's slate of speakers for their food summit. Uh, former Secretaries of Agriculture Dan Glickman and Ann Veneman, along with the current Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, joined leaders of several food production and delivery system leaders May 12th for a virtual food summit hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center. According to the BPC, there hasn't been a time in the U.S. that the country has witnessed Americans struggling to feed their families while farmers at the same time dump milk or euthanize their livestock or even plow under their produce. The coronavirus pandemic has brought attention to the country's complex and delicate food supply chain. Secretary Sonny Perdue said he, like many Americans, wasn't really aware of the complexity of the food chain. And that's something because he is the Secretary of Agriculture. <laughs> um, and, you know, it is very, very complex, even for the Secretary of Agriculture. 
There is a, quote, very dual track parallel production in processing and logistics or delivery systems that we have in the U.S. Kayleen, we talked about that. Uh, there is a, a track for the um, retail side and a track for the wholesale side, and you really can't change those up on a whim. Uh, yeah, some of those changes happened overnight. And these these people that are in charge of stuff had to change things rather rapidly. Yep. So following Purdue's comments, Glickman and Veneman helped host a, a panel discussion. That panel included American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duval, Julie Anna Potts, President and CEO of the North American Meat Institute, Leslie Sarenson, President and CEO of Food Marketing Institute, and Katie Fitzgerald, Executive Vice President and COO of Feeding America. That must have been a really good panel, Kayleen. What are what are some thoughts that you took away from that? The panel discussion was really neat to listen to because, you know, like the Feeding America lady had some thoughts on people that were coming to food banks for the very first time and the, the shame and embarrassment they felt and how she had to explain that this is why these food charities are here. And then, you know, the Juliana Potts, who was the president and CEO of the North American Meat Institute, talked about some of the, the challenges they had in the plants and how they worked with the plant operators to get the employees the things they need to be safe. You know, we are very blessed in America to have the most plentiful, the safest, most nutritious food supply of any other country in the United in the world. We are very blessed. And we and and it's not shameful to reach out and ask for help when you need it. So uh, if you're in that situation and you're listening to this right now, please know that we are not judging you. Nobody is judging you. You have families that you have to take care of and yourself that you have to take care of. And by golly, that's why we put efforts towards these food banks. We are trying to help our fellow, our fellow um, Americans and, and our neighbors. And so um, please, please, if you need help, please ask for it. And um, there are people out there that, that will, that will pitch in and, there's no shame in it, and nobody's ever going to look down on you for it, right? No, not 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 at all. And I've even seen commercials for Feeding America on TV, and I don't think I've seen those prior to all this happening. It's one of the it's one of the good charities that we have available that um, puts a, it's it's bipartisan. You know, it's it's not red, it's not blue, it's purple. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they look at all of, I mean, corporate America looks at it as it's a, a sound place for them to invest their their time, their talents, their money, um, their resources. And so yeah, reach out if, and even if you don't need help, if you're in a, in a situation where you're okay and your family, you're okay, you guys are, are safe and sound and have food, you know what? Consider volunteering with Feeding America or another local food bank charity in your area because- like we say, we're all Americans and we all need help sometimes. And Brent Bean has a column irrigating grain sorghum. Sorghum is a reliable dryland crop in our many environments, but it can also respond well to irrigation. This versatility allows sorghum to fit into many cropping systems where the availability of irrigation water may be limited. You know, Kayleen, Brent Bean is actually going to be one of our speakers um, presenting a breakout session or two at the 
2020 wheat slash sorghum U, August 11th in Mulvane, Kansas. We're back in Mulvane again at the casino. Um, that registration should be up and going at hpj.com. So we really encourage everybody from Oklahoma and Kansas. And hey, if you want to come in from, from farther out, uh, join us at Wheat Slash Sorghum U. Listen to Brent Bean and some of our other resources. And um, we'll see if we can't uh, improve your bottom lines. And you can read more about the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal, or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources on May 19th. Corn was down at $3.11. Wheat was down at $3.97. Milo was down at $3.26. And soybeans were down at $7.48. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. for our Cattle U preview issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes June 1st with a story from Jenny. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcasts. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at hpjtalk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day This country life is for me Ride with us, HPJ Ride with us, HPJ